keep in mind, I, I write my messages early, right? We, um, we, as a staff and as the elders, we pray um, in advance, and then we set our calendar, our preaching calendar, a year ahead. Um, it's one of the great things that we get to do, be thinking about what, we want, what God has for us, right? We fast and pray, and we ask God what He wants, and then, and then I have that chance to really study and to go into God's Word and go deep and let it really become part of my life before I even have a chance to even write the message, which is a great thing. Well, I wrote this message about two months ago, and then I was just shocked as we go back to it, God's amazing timing over and over again, how he'll have prepared something that we would never even have foreseen in the future, how it just incredibly relevant God's word is for us today. So keep that in mind. Here's the, God was, is at work in, in this. So um, in the, the uh, book of Acts, which is what we're going through, the book of Acts is the second half of the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke goes back, investigates the gospel, makes sure that everything is true, writes his account down of how we know that Jesus is real, the Messiah, all the things he did. Then we get to Acts, and this is after Jesus was crucified and after he rose from the dead, and, and it's the story of then how then the, the mission of Christ continues today. That's why it's the book of Acts, not the book of Sits, not the book of Thinks, the book of Acts. The church is continuing, right? And it's how God is at work and amongst this. So the book of Acts is fairly long. And so um, what we've done is we've broken the book of Acts up into three major sections, part one, part two, part three. Part one is what we're in right now, and we're going through one chapter a week uh, in order, and uh, this is how we're doing it. We're going through, and uh, in part one, we, the theme is a new kingdom come, because if you read that first, those first nine verses, that's really the theme of God's kingdom coming in this earth, and what does that mean? Every week as we're going through each chapter, I'm going to go through a quick review. I'm just going to tell you the story, the quick review of what's happened in the chapter. Then we're going to focus in on application. So that's the process that we've been in. Before we do that for today's thing, however, uh, we always have a Bible memory verse because disciples of Jesus know God's Word, and we want to set it into our heart. It's powerful. And I've chosen one memory verse for this entire series instead of one per week like we normally do because this is a very important one. This is the Great Commission that Jesus has given us in the book of Acts. Now, it pairs with the Great Commission that he also gives us in the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, to make disciples. But then he tells us in Acts 1-8, this is our marching orders from Jesus. And this is what he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And each week we've seen how that applies in, in Scripture. And in fact, the book of Acts really... Uh, gives us now uh, some indication application for this. Now, the thing is, is this isn't just some dead writing. This is the living scripture, and this is what God has called us to do. And some things in there that we're going to hit today, I want you to think about. One of them is that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. This is not just up to you. What God has called us to, building his kingdom, requires more than what people can do on their own. Right? So be encouraged that God's power is in us. But there's something, there's a part that we have to play. That we're going to be witnesses, but whose witnesses? His. And that is really what the focus of chapter 6 is today, is what are witnesses? Who are we testifying? So if you have your Bibles, you wouldn't mind, please turn them to Acts chapter 6. If you have uh, one of our Bibles, you're one of ours, if uh, you forgot your Bible today or you need one, we've got lots of them in the back um, by the sound booth and that little uh, um, bookshelf there. And if you need a Bible, please keep it, our gift to you. Now, uh, Acts chapter 6 is all about, you're going to find here, it's about old allegiances being challenged and being replaced, and new allegiance being embraced. And when we talk about old allegiances, things that in our world are are things that, uh, in pretty much every culture throughout time, are things that people become partisan to. Things like cultural, 
our cultural background, our cultural makeup, who we are, or our race, these are being challenged, or our, our politic, or our religious affiliation. These things are, ch- are what are being challenged in Acts chapter 6. And then, in through this, we discover that the destructive things of being partisan for the wrong things, which does cause a lot of problems in amongst society and, in, and amongst each other, there's a, they can be replaced with something much better. In Acts chapter 6, we discover that there is actually a whole new way to be human. And there's an invitation to it, and it's amazing. So let's go through. Here's the review of Acts chapter 6. You go to Acts chapter 6, there's two major movements. The very first thing is we discover that the very first deacons are chosen. And then at the end of the chapter, we discover that one of those deacons, a guy named Stephen, is arrested. So that's basically the outline. That's the overview of what's happening. But there's a lot more happening in there than that. Let me give you some context of what's happening in this chapter and understand the culture in which this was written in. This was real events that happened in real time to real people. And so some of the conflict that you're going to find here, um, there's some history to it. There's a reason that there was conflict. One of the places of conflict that you're going to find in there are between a group of people that were called Hellenistic Jews and other ones that were called Hebraic Jews. Okay, and because they were all coming part of the church. Now, why was there conflict there? Let's go back in history. Okay, there was uh, in the history of, of Israel. If you go back pretty far, about fourth century BC, you have a group of, of people called the Greeks, and the Greeks end up taking over the Holy Land. Right, and as they were in power over the Holy Land, there was this guy eventually who came to power, part of the Seleucid Empire, a guy named Antiochus. And the fourth, Epiphanes the fourth, he was a, a pretty bad dude, and scripture even prophesied person for the faith. And what he did, Antiochus, he didn't think he was a bad person, as most people don't think they're bad. He thought he, what he was doing was a great thing, because he was an evangelist for Greek thought. He believed in his heart and his soul that the Greek culture was the most superior culture ever, and everybody should be Greek. And if you're not, you're basically a barbarian. And so what he had done is Antioch, all the people in Israel, the Jewish people, he wanted them to stop acting Jewish and start acting more Greek like everybody else. And so in order to do that, he had a two-prong approach. He had a carrot and a stick. The stick was this. If you were Jewish and you acted Jewish and you kept a Jewish tradition and all of those things, then you would be persecuted brutally. And when I say brutally, I mean exactly that. He would beat you. He would have you tortured, arrested. He would have your land taken from you. You would lose your homes. You would be on the run. And you couldn't hide it, right? If it was your culture, you would be executed. You would be mocked. You would be, he would come against you with all of the power of the entire government and culture. He would make sure that you were not only shamed, right, by culture itself, but then also persecuted and brutally taken out by the government. Well, what happened was, is it, that was the, the, the stick portion of it. There was also the carrot. If you were a Jewish person and you would abandon your Jewish culture, and you, you didn't have to abandon your Jewish faith, but if you would abandon your Jewish culture, if you would start to act like a, a Greek person, and you would start to educate your kids like other Greek people, right? If you start to, to have your culture around you look more and more and more Greek, you would be rewarded. See, all that land he took away from and property and money he was taking away from those who kept to the, the traditional Jewish culture were, were taken away from them and given to those who would adopt to the Greek culture. So the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews were being persecuted and having their stuff taken and giving to others who basically were, were not turning away from the faith, 
but definitely the culture of their faith. And because of that, there grew to be animosity, naturally, between the Hebraic Jews and what we would call the Hellenized Jews. Because if you adapt to Greek culture, that's what they call is that they were Hellenized. Now, Antiochus went a little too far. And what happens when you go too far is the pendulum swings, doesn't it? And in Scripture, we discovered that this was prophesied that this would happen. And Antiochus pushes so far that there is a rebellion that takes place in the Holy Land. Underneath, there's a new, a new group of people. With the, and this group of, of faithful Hellenistic Jews, these Orthodox Jews, they rise up against their oppressor. And they fight this amazing battle, and miraculously, they win, and they kick the, Jew, the, the Greeks out. Well, when that happens, the power structure in Israel shifts. And all of those once oppressed and persecuted, all of those that were the Hellenistic Jews that enjoyed the easier life being, being uh, more Greek, all of a sudden now they were being persecuted. And they were having their land taken from them and their children executed and all of this type of stuff, which then, of course, created animosity between the Hellenistic Jews and the Orthodox. You see how there was a division. And these were no small things. Well, eventually, the Romans come into power, right, again. And as the Romans come back into power, now the power structure begins to shift again. The Romans were far more Hellenistic, far more Greek than they were Jewish, Right, And so when they came back into power, the Romans again wanted all of these cultures that they took over to act more Roman, didn't they? In fact, the Romans are the ones that came up with the, with the word barbarian, meant people who weren't Roman. And so again, now we find this shift back to being, the, for the Jewish people, holding on to Jewish culture was dangerous and was basically looked down upon and by, the, by the entire uh, empire, but in Jerusalem, it was held on to as this is something which is the pure faith. This is the ones that are good. However, there were also Jews that were in Jerusalem who were Hellenized, who came from all over the world, right, and came back to Jerusalem, and they were the Hellenized Jews, and the two parties didn't like each other, right? They recognized that they had the same faith, but there was some deep level bitterness and, and pain that stretches back hundreds of years. The next thing that we understand is, is that there was also a hierarchy, as in culture, all cultures have pecking orders and hierarchies, don't we? We have socioeconomic hierarchies, as well as we have social hierarchies. Even in school, when I was a youth pastor, we called them cliques, right? right? But it doesn't stop there. It's in all culture, right? And the Jewish culture in Jerusalem had that as well, and this plays into what happens in today's message, in today's scripture, you see, the first thing is we understand in Jerusalem at the time, religiously, politically, there were two major factions uh, amongst the Jews. The first were the Sadducees, the other ones were the Pharisees. The Sadducees were basically the, the liberal elite in, in Jerusalem. Okay, these were the Jewish people, and I say liberal, I'm not saying politically liberal, I'm saying theologically liberal. What I mean by that is they looked at Scripture, and they said the Scripture is God's truth figuratively, allegorically. It's true, there's wisdom in it, but it's not, it doesn't mean exactly like it says. So the, Pharise- or the Sadducees were able to say things like, well, we believe that there is scientific to us. That seems very unrational. I haven't seen a, uh, a spirit, 
And so we, we, don't, we say we don't believe in the afterlife, right? They were also able to look at the morals and ethics of, of the Old Testament, which was their Bible, and they were able to say, well, that was true for that time, but there's a better principle, right, in this. And so they were able to say it doesn't, it's, it's spiritual, it's spiritualized, it's allegorical, but it doesn't have to be taken as true, right? And because of that, the Sadducees were able to really adopt to the Roman culture very easily, Right? Because all of the laws and all of those things, they didn't think it actually literally applied to them. So they were able to act more Roman and keep their conscience clean. Right? And because of that, it, doesn't make, it, it shouldn't surprise us that they rose to political power in amongst Jerusalem, which is why we find like the high priest and, and others around that those who were wealthy, who had more to lose if they actually held to what God's word had to say, were those who would, basically they held to the Sadducee side. On the other part, there was the, uh, the Pharisees. The Pharisees came into existence after the temple was being rebuilt the second time. So you remember that the God, uh, he, he punished the people of Israel because they had forgotten his laws and they were doing all kinds of horrible things in his name and they forgot the sacrifices and all those things. And so he sent them away to Babylon for seven years to think about uh, what is true, right? And when they came back and they rebuilt the temple, there was a group of Jewish people that said, this will never happen again. We will never forget God's law ever again. And they set themselves so much to God's law, they were so dedicated to God's law, they said, this is what God's law has to say, we're going to build a fence around God's law. So we're going to create laws around the laws that will keep us from accidentally breaking God's law. Things like this, God's law would say, you're supposed to keep a Sabbath. And, the, and they would say, well, that's kind of general. So the, the Pharisees eventually rose up and they said, in order to make sure that, that we're not working on the Sabbath, we're going to say you can't walk more than this many steps on the Sabbath. That's what that means. So they created new laws in order to protect them from violating God's laws. They took God's word so seriously, right, that they, they basically they protected the law from themselves, right? And they created all this group of law on the outside. The Pharisees were highly regarded amongst the populace of the people of Israel. They saw that these are people that are very devout to their faith and were highly regarded, and you have these two factions that basically they did not see things alike and they had not a lot of love for one another inside of the Jewish faith. And they worked together in the temple. In amongst this as well, you also have the different hierarchies in the culture, right? Not just these two major factions, but you also have like the very highest level in Jerusalem to be, you know, that they would be looked up to with the Hebraic Jewish people who kept to Jewish traditions, right? The Orthodox ones. They were considered to be, you know, Jewish in both biology and, and culture as well as religion, right? And so the Orthodox or the Hebraic Jewish people would have their own synagogues, right? They, they met together and they had their own culture and so they cared for one another in that culture. Below them were the Hellenistic Jews that were in Jerusalem, right? And they were seen as good but not quite as devout, right? The Pharisees wouldn't be part of this group. Right? They, they, were, they were Jewish in faith, but just not in culture. And so they built their own synagogues. And we do that here, don't we? Look, we have churches for people that, that have one kind of culture, and then we have churches for others that have different kinds of culture. So they did. And so you had these Hellenistic uh, groups of, of Jews in their synagogues, and they met together. And then below them was the Acolytes. And Acolytes were basically converts to Judaism. They were religiously Jewish, but they weren't born Jewish, right? So they weren't really biologically descendants of Abraham. So they were accepted into the community, but mm, not quite the same. 
And so we would find in each of these two cultures, both Hellenistic and in the more traditional, the, um, the uh, Hebraic, you would have acolytes that were in there, and they were kind of seen as second tier, right? That they were Jewish, but mm, Jewish light, right? And then what we would have is we had below them is that you had the freedmen. In Roman culture, a good majority of people were slaves, right? A good number of people actually were slaves. A lot of people were slaves. And these slaves were considered human, but politically and culturally didn't have a whole lot of rights. They, did, they were a very marginalized group, even though it was a very large group. Some of those slaves eventually would earn their freedom. And when they earned their freedom, they would come out, and some of them were Jewish. Some of them had converted to Judaism in the midst of their bondage. Because talk about a faith that talks about that there is salvation from bondage. <laughs> and Judaism brought in people into the faith. Well, these freedmen were part of this culture, but culturally they were kind of seen as less than. And so what did they do? Oftentimes they formed their own synagogues because they had their own experience in life and their own way of seeing things. So you have synagogues for the freedmen, and they were kind of seen as the bottom rung. All of these factions you're going to see play a role in the story that we have today. Another thing that we find also is in there is widows. Widows in the early uh, in the Jewish world, had a different role. There was not as much uh, social networking, all the take care of widows, take care of orphans, take care of, of the alien amongst you, take care of those that are hurting. That's what the Scripture tells us to do. That's pure and good religion. That's what the Scripture says, right? So the Jewish people were called to take care of those in their own synagogues that were hurt. Now, they didn't just take care of all widows. Jewish people saw as they were going to take care of our widows, right? Jewish people take care of Jewish widows. The rest of Greek culture really didn't have that same ethic. And so the Orthodox synagogues, what they would do is they would care for the widows that needed to be take care, taken care of in the Orthodox synagogues. The Hellenistic synagogues would take care of the Hellenistic widows that were in that synagogue. And that seems like it's going to be a pretty good system until you recognize what's happening in Jerusalem at the time. You see, that it was an honorable thing for a Jew to be buried in Jerusalem. In fact, at the time that, that this came out, there was even some teachings that were being widely taught that in order to be raised from the dead, when, when the new kingdom came, a, a person had to be, to be actually physically buried or present in Jerusalem or in the Holy Land. And if they weren't, then they wouldn't be raised from the dead. And so they had this crazy thing that was being taught that if you were a Jewish person and then the Messiah came, and in order to be raised from the dead, you'd have to roll yourself to Jerusalem under the earth, which would be very painful and difficult, and it might take a long time. But eventually, if you got there, then you could be raised from the dead, right? So with that kind of belief, with that understanding, you get this, the people who were in the Holy Land already, they were good. They didn't have to move at the end of their life to be, make sure that when they died, they would die in Jerusalem in the Holy Land. But those who were living on the outside of the Holy Land, at the end of their lives, when they were older, when they were retired, when they were getting ready to die, they would have to leave their families and their support networks and their, cult and their communities, and they would move, pack up and move into Jerusalem, into this area where they didn't have family and all of the support structures things, right? Now, Jewish people didn't just care for all widows. They cared for those that were in their synagogues that needed help. See, if, if you were in a, in a, in a synagogue and uh, there was a, a person that died, and usually it's the husband who dies first, a tradition that we've continued, right? <laughs> right? If the husband dies first, you have this wife. Well, if the wife 
this widow is surrounded by children and family and all that kind of stuff. The family's job was to take care of her. And so she didn't need to be cared for by the synagogue. But if the family was unable to take care of her or she didn't have an extended family or anything like that, the community wasn't there to take care of her, then the synagogue would step up and they would then take care of her for physical needs. They would provide her a place to live. They would, and these widows' jobs, they needed to live lives of mercy. They were agents, actually, of the early synagogue to go out and to do charitable work. It was a great thing, right? Well, think about this. If you have the Hebraic Jews, most of them already live in the Holy Land, and so they, they don't have to leave their community or families. Their hus- these, these women, these widows, their husbands die, which is sad, but they're able to already be. They don't have to leave all that support network. Right? So they don't have to be cared for by their local synagogues. The families are already there doing that work. And so the Hebraic synagogues did care for widows, but a very small number of widows. The Hellenistic synagogues, however, were packed with widows. Because you had these families moving to Jerusalem at the end of their lives, moving away from their families and their communities and all those support structures. And when those husbands died, it left widows who had no help. And so you have this minority group in Jerusalem, these, these, Hellenistic ortho, uh, these Hellenistic synagogues that were also now straddled, strapped to take care of this high proportionate number of widows. It was a big deal in the early first century, and it wasn't just in the church. This was part of the Jewish culture, and these were... Uh, these, this created all kinds of, of difficulties and frictions, right? All of these factions, all of these things now come into play. If you keep these things in mind, it'll help you understand what's happening and going on in Acts 6, right? And so let's focus in on some places of God's Word. First thing I want to do is chapters 1 through 7, in chapter, or sorry, verses 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 6, you're going to find that these old identities have to be exchanged. You see a great exchange of, of how people count themselves, who they are. Right? In verse 1, we see a, an incredible thing. We see that old identities, they cause controversy in the church. That's why they have to be replaced. Verse 1, it says this, In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews amongst them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, do you make, does it make sense why this was a problem? This wouldn't have been a surprise to them. But the thing was happening is, in Jerusalem, you have Hebraic Jews, which was the majority, coming to Jesus, right? Coming to faith, right? Because that's the majority of, of folks that were coming to faith. And then you also have a few of the um, Hellenistic Jews who were coming in, right? And now in this, they're not having that same structure of having their synagogues, right? Now they're one. They're being put together in one big community. Hebraic Jew, you're going to take care of Hebraic widows. That's what you're going to do. So you have a lot of Hebraic Jews taking care of a very small number of Hebraic widows in the church. And you have this massive number, disproportionate number, of, Hebraic, of, of Hellenistic widows who had a very small number of Hellenistic Christians now to take care of them. And it created controversy. Remember, part of the marks of this early church is that everyone was caring for one another, selling property, taking care of needs and all that, so no one had need. But in this, there was this section, this faction, this important group of these widows who were not being cared for. And it was causing animosity in amongst the church. And so why does the church respond? 
Well, in verse 2, we find that we see exactly how the church responds. It's a very fascinating thing. It says, um, in verse 2, it says, uh, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and they will give their attention uh, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is a powerful thing. Now, some of, first, let's look what the church didn't first do, what it didn't do. If it did what the culture expected, the apostles would go to the, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians and say, listen, you need to take care of your widows. Or it would have gone over to the, the Hebraic Jewish Christians and said, shame on you for not being more benevolent, you should, you should take care of them. This is your problem to take care of this minority who uh, you've never had responsibility for. That, that would be the expectation, right? Would be to make the dividing line the cultural line that had always been there. But that's not what the church did. The 12, if you see here, the first thing that it did is it gathered everybody. It gathered all the disciples together. There was a lot of disciples. This is thousands of people. This was the Hellenized Jews. This was the Hebraic Jews. It brings everybody together, and they say, this is a family. We need to fix this. It didn't say, well, it doesn't matter. They said, we're going to do this. We're going to fix this together, and they called them as one. Now, also, you'll see here that the disciples didn't just say, okay, we'll fix it. We're the leaders. We're going to take care of this problem. We're the ministers here. That's not what they said. They said here, we can't just take care of this. We already have a ministry. Our ministry is... We're going to be in the Word, we're going to be in prayer. We have to be supporting. This is important work. We are not the only ministers in the church. We have a job to do, and we can't neglect that. But they didn't say the problem. And so they looked out into the congregation, and they say, we together need to fix this. And you also are ministers. You have the capacity to address this. You have the authority to address this. And they called them together, not according to faction, but just according to... as. As, as a group in Christ. Now, I also want you to notice who they call, how they decided to do this. They said, we want you to get some leaders, some folks to manage this, to handle this. And what were the qualifications, which we later called deacons? There were two things, weren't there? First one is be full of spirit, and the other one is uh, wisdom. There was two qualifications, be full of the spirit and wisdom. This is what they asked to do. These are the qualifications. First one, you have to have a real faith. It's got to be a demonstrated faith. It's got to be a consistent faith. They have to already demonstrate that God is working in their life, right? They have to have a, a high level of, co- of character, right? They have to be respected amongst other people because of that character, to be full of the Spirit. It's not just that they're full of religious knowledge. No, they have to be demonstrated that these are the people that, that have the moral authority to reach this problem and also have the moral temperament to reach this problem, right? That's, these are what they're looking for. The second one is wisdom, they got to know what they're doing. These people got to be competent. Right? They have to have demonstrated in such a way that they are in the right place, the right people to do this job. Both are necessary for this position of leadership in the church. And think how important this is. I mean, I think sometimes churches get it wrong. We, sometimes we just look to somebody, do they have one of these two? Is this a person that is morally, is morally uh, mature and we're going to make them a deacon? 
Well, what if the person is deeply spiritual, knows the Lord, all that kind of stuff, but they are completely incompetent in the area that, that we're trying to put the leadership under? Right? That would be horrible. For example, if you, if, if you saw in me, hopefully you see in me some fruits of the Spirit. Hopefully you see that I, I'm walking with the Lord. I'm not perfect, but hopefully you could say, yeah, Aaron has proven that a guy has got the Spirit in him. I hope that that's there. If not, it's time to find a new pastor, right? If you made me the deacon of auto care, you would have made a bad choice, right? I don't do car work. I don't like it. I had a Volkswagen bug when I was 16, and that darn thing burned up seven times. I had to rebuild it seven times, and I swore to myself, I will never, ever, ever have to do this again. I hate this, right? I am competent to drive your car to Jiffy Lube. That's what I can do for you. But if you're like, oh, I don't my car's making a sound, I'm like, mm, get a new one. I don't know, right? When the church brings up people that are just spiritually, is it, is it, it thwarts the work of the church, doesn't it? Maybe they're, they're, spiritually com- they're, they're spiritually a great person, and there's a different ministry that they're supposed to be part of, right? But the other thing they had to be is sometimes we look at competence. Sometimes we look at somebody, and man, they might be great with cars, but they'll steal your wallet on the way out. The church can't be just taking somebody who says, well, you're good at business, or you're good at this, or you're good at that, and therefore you should be in charge of this ministry because it can give the church a black eye and cause all kinds of rifts and struggles in the church, right? There had to be both. And I think that the early church, they did this. They got seven guys, and they said, these guys are both uh, highly respected because of their faith, and they have a high level of competence demonstrated in their life. And everybody agreed to that, both the Hebraic as well as the Hellenistic. Everybody looked to them, and this is an important distinction to make because look at the names that's on there. It says, this, verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parsimonus, and, Nicola, and Nicholas, and Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Right? They picked seven guys. Now, something that might not stick out to you because this is not our culture, but it was theirs. Every one of those seven names, Hellenistic. What kind of group gives authority to the offended minority? Think about that. That's a lot of trust, isn't it? Why is it that the early church said this is, we have a minority of people that are wanting more resources, and we're going to give them all of it. All of these people are Hellenistic. Remember the qualifications? The first one is that they are full of the Spirit. Before they were given authority, every one of these Hellenistic Christians, every one of them had already earned the respect of the Hebraic Christians. They had already demonstrated their faith and faithfulness. They had already earned the right to be trusted. This wasn't that the church said, we're giving the authority to this group, and you guys are just going to have to like it. The church says, and then the majority were the Hellenistic Hellenistic Christians. And the Hellenistic Christians recognized that the second part, they had to be full of wisdom. These people had to be competent. Who better to meet the need of Hellenistic widows than the people that are already meeting the need of Hellenistic widows? Each one of these seven would have known the widows that were needing of help. They were in the position to provide the aid that was needed. And so the church said, listen, we are no longer Hellenistic and Hebraic. We are Christian. And we will empower the people who are at the best position to meet that need, who have demonstrated that they have the character to meet the need. There was a different kind of trust going both ways, and it was powerful. So I want you to see what the result was 
as it says, so the disciples uh, placed their hands on them. The apostles actually said, we are happy to do this. These guys are, are good. And then, verse 7, so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. I think the world is sick and tired of old partisanship. I think the world is sick and tired of all the things that causes us to hate one another and to work against each other. The church's response to a very partisan issue was not to embrace the partisanship, but instead to say, there is a new way. If we're going to be partisan, let's be partisan in Christ. And the result was the church not only grows healthy, but it grows also in numbers. That's an amazing thing. And so we find that we have this, the church is growing and the church is powerful and it's, it's an amazing way for it to be. In fact, in this we find that Hebraic Christians, Hellenistic Christians, we had apostles, which amongst that church was the highest thing, as well as even one acolyte is elevated to the point of deacon. We see the church erasing the old dividing lines and coming together in a brand new way, working together. And the result is an amazing thing. The church is growing powerfully. And then in verse 8 through 15, we see the exact opposite happen. While the church is enjoying unity from within, we find that old partisanship is being embraced from the outside. We find that that there was a group of of Jewish people that were part of the freedmen. Remember the, the lowest rung on the Jewish thing? They started fighting against Stephen, and they were debating him because Stephen kept saying Jesus is the Messiah. And so they debated him, but, and remember that, that we have these freedmen who were debating a guy who was just one rung higher than them on the ladder. He was a Hellenistic Jew, right? And, and so this was their chance to, to push him down and to build themselves up, right? But it didn't work because as they discussed things, he kept showing them in Scripture that Jesus really is the Messiah. And instead of listening to truth, they held on to old partisanship. They said, we're not going to let you, you Hebraic guy, tell us what to believe. And so instead of attacking the argument, what do they do? They assault his character. When they couldn't take him down, they started to then get other people to bring false accusations to, to smear his character and to bring about a huge happen in our modern world. But, but we found that it used to happen like that, right? And so what do they do is they create this division. And so while the church was enjoying grace and unity from within, it was now starting to experience conflict from the outside. And the coolest thing about this is that we will see even next week how Stephen responds. He does not respond in the old partisan way. He does not say to the freedmen, oh, you little freedmen, You're less than I am anyway. Who are you to bring these accusations against me? He doesn't go against all of those things to create division. In fact, the way that he responds is is amazing. And I invite you next week to come back and to hear that. But I'll tell you this. One of the things that's interesting is even when all these accusations take place, Stephen knew that there was a better way to be. And so even as he's sitting there with all of the people looking at him, and it says, the very last part of this, it says, and they all looked at him and his face was that, that of an angel. Because there's something powerful about knowing who we are and living in truth. He wasn't going to engage in the partisan debate. That was a great thing. So how do we apply this? I think that there's a lot of things in, in Scripture here that we are kind of very applicable for our society today. But I think the first one is we have to understand this. Old identities cause internal conflict. 
cause internal conflict. A lot of the conflict that we have in the church is people, as Christians, saying that I'm something else first and then also a Christian. I'm an American Christian. I'm a white Christian, right? I'm a rich Christian, right? Or I'm a poor Christian. I'm a Republican Christian or I'm a Democrat Christian. Whatever we put first, those things can then cause us to hate people that aren't that thing, right? It causes conflict. How many churches are divided over small things? I am a Calvinist Christian. I'm an Arminian Christian. Are you a Christian? This is the first thing. This is what we need to call first. See, the world is very good at making us hate one another because the world has a prince, and the prince is the devil, and the devil's designed to make us hate one another and slaughter each other. And it's working, isn't it? But there is a new way in this kingdom, and that those old partisanships do not belong here. Do you know that in this church we have people who are very politically liberal and people in this church who are very politically conservative, but here we are one in Christ? Did you know that? Do you know in this church we have people who come from very, very uh, uh, liturgical backgrounds in their church? Even me, Catholic, right? And we have in this church people who come from very, very charismatic backgrounds. And do you know that in this place, we have people kind of come from the middle, more baptist kind of stuff. Do you know what? Here, we are one in Christ about who we are than these other things that we so often identify ourselves with. I am more than my race. I am more than my gender. I am more than my politic. In fact, all of those things are temporary, aren't they? Do you think in the kingdom of God, when Jesus comes back and you get your new body and we have our new homes together with him and all of this, that there is going to be a section you say, I'm an American? Do you think in all of that there's going to be some place in the kingdom of God where there's going to be a little hut that's there that's for the Republicans and another one for the Democrats? I understand that in the kingdom of God, as far as I can read, and God gives us a little picture of it, he peels back the curtain, he says, before the throne were people from all languages and tribes and nations and tongues. It's not those things didn't exist, it's that those things didn't keep us apart anymore. That wasn't the main thing anymore, that we are something bigger, we are one. This is the call. If we are partisan, let us be partisan in Christ. All those other things are temporary anyhow. And so we can't let that be our primary identity anymore. For the sake of unity in the body. Instead, it says this, our identity in Christ has got to be embraced. We've got to start here. If you are in Christ, then you are my brother or you are my sister. We have something more alike that is eternal than any temporary difference that we may hold. Do you understand that? It doesn't mean those temporary differences don't exist. It means that they are not primary anymore. Paul talks about this in Galatians. It says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. And the book of Galatians is talking about how do we hold on to, what does it mean to be a Christian? Do you have to be Jewish first? That's a pretty important faction, Jews and Gentiles. And even in that, it says, no, there's something more important. Now, he's not saying that there is literally no such thing as a Jew or a Gentile. Because Scripture talks about there is literally Jews and literally Gentile. He's not saying there's neither male nor female. I mean, the Word of God says God created them, male and female, right? There's literally men's and female. That's a biological difference. It says here that, that those, however, even slave nor free, is that saying that there are some people that are slaves or not free? That doesn't exist. No, in this world, there are rich people and there are poor people. That exists. That's a reality. What it's saying is that those are no longer primary. Those are no longer my identity. Those may be part of my experience, 
may be an important part of my experience, but it's not primary who I am. It cannot be primary who I am. We have to first be in Christ. We have to have an affection first, and then we can begin to heal the wounds that this world has caused us to inflict on one another. That's what it's saying. Christ has got to be what defines us. And that's why it says this, then our identity has got to be demonstrated in the church. Because we are together in Christ, aren't we? Together means something. That's actually a word for it, the assembly, church. It's what, who we are. If I really am one in Christ, I have to be one in Christ. Who we are in Jesus has got to be primary. Saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This has got to be our primary thing. and It's got to be demonstrated in how we act. So how is this demonstrated? How is this made obvious in the church? Well, the first very easy way is through baptism. You understand like one of the reasons God gave us baptism? What happens? You are dead to yourself. That's what you are declaring to the world. The old person that I was that had all these other things that defined me and separated me from another person is dead and buried and not coming back. And what comes back out of the water is a person that is reborn into the same family as every other Christian. That's what it means. It's a demonstration, a huge one, not just to one another, but also in the heavenlies, that I am now part of God's family. And we can be one in Christ. Baptism is a great, an amazing demonstration of this. But it doesn't end there. Do you understand that it's also through faithfulness? How we live. Every nation has a culture. And God's kingdom has a culture too. And we live differently than the rest of this world. We have different morals than the rest of this world. How we structure our life is going to be different than the rest of this world. And we have that together in common. Not because it's in here, but because it's in here. And when we start to live this together, all of a sudden, we begin to demonstrate to the world that this is not just me. This is God's kingdom invading this world. This is what causes me, maybe as a Hellenistic Jew, to care for, I don't know, Hebraic Jew. And as a Hebraic Jew, to care for a Hellenistic Jew. Or I'll tell you this, as a Republican, to care for a Democrat that's a Christian. Or a Democrat as a Christian, to care for a Republican. It's this one thing that we say we can love people in the way that the world says we have to hate them. We can overcome that because we are new in Christ. He is our identity. When we start to live that, it's where we unlock that power. And so it's through faithfulness. And our faithfulness is demonstrated in lots of ways. How about like through membership, church membership? Do you know what? When you become a member of the church, you are saying to other people and to the church, I'm in this with you. We not may be perfect together, but we're in this together. Or how about through this, through attendance? Do you know when you show up here, you are telling every other Christian, I'm in this with you. We're in this together, backgrounds, but we are one together in Christ. You also have witness to your neighbors who are wondering, where the heck are they going every Sunday morning? Because it makes no sense to the rest of the world why you would wake up and come together with people that aren't like you. You have a witness. Being here matters. Or how about your tithe? Do you ever think about your tithe? That's the reason that God has designed every local church to be fully supported financially by the faithfulness of its own members. You know Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but it's a testimony together of us saying that we care about God and His kingdom more than I care about me and my kingdom. And when you make a tithe, you're not just saying, well, God, I have to. You get to say this, God, we get to. And the more we get to do this, the more we get to bring God's kingdom at work in our community, in our lives. It's a way together we get to remind one another, hey, listen, I'm trusting God first. And you get to do that too. This is an amazing thing, and we get to see God bless it. Or how about this? How about just godly living? 
You know what's amazing? I had several times over the last couple of months, folks from the community who are not part of our, our family of faith yet come because their families are broken. Just broken. The things of this world, they're just, just held together by a, just a, a thread. And going into God's Word and giving them hope and power to say there's a different way that you can actually love your spouse not because of what they do for you, because God is in you and He can help. And there's an amazing thing. There's some truth. There's power in this. It's part of our testimony. It's a demonstration that it's not just about me anymore. It's an invitation to stop living selfish lives that lead to our own destruction. This is, this is, this is my faith demonstrated in the church. How I care for you, how I love you, it's a demonstration. And this is the way the faith has got to be. We can't just claim to be in Christ and then hate one another. Scripture makes that very true. Makes it very clear. If we are here, we are to love one another and learn how to do that more and more each day. Here's a passage that Paul talks about this and your role in it. Ephesians 4, it says, instead, we're going to speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Isn't that what we want to be? Be disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus? And who is Jesus? The head of the body, which is the church. We're together in this, a body. He says, he, Jesus, makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and filled with love. This is Christ's work in us. God is going to bring people into this church intentionally that are different than you. Just as like in your body, your spleen doesn't look like your eyeball. Praise God. Right? Parts of the body that won't necessarily like each other. Right? Like the nose and the armpit. Probably not best friends. But they're all part of the same body, and they all have a role to play. Right? Christ is bringing us together. My role is not to look at the other person and say, would I like them? My role is when I look at the person and say, can I love them? And if I am in Christ, the answer is yes. It also says this, you have work to do. If you are in the body, you are designed by God to do something in this body. And as we do that, the whole body is healthy, growing, and full of love. That is what a healthy church looks like. Not when everybody's sitting there waiting for the few to do the ministry, but when we together say we are expanding Christ's kingdom of love and mercy together. And I have a role to play. This is what a powerful church looks like, by the way. You ever notice that athletes generally have healthy bodies? Right? That's, that's what makes them compete, to do powerful things. When the church is healthy, it is powerful. It is a force to be reckoned with. When the church, when we are serving in love, one another, and this community, it is going to be an unstoppable force in this community. And you have a part to play in that. So the invitation is find your identity. Find a new identity. Whatever it was first, find your identity in Christ. And in so doing, find your identity in church. Do it together. How do we apply this? There's a lot of ways. So I narrowed it down to four. And then you can expand that upon it. If you take your connection card out, I've got some next steps. I'm going to challenge you to take this week. Because finding a new identity is a big deal, isn't it? The back of your connection card this week, maybe what you want to do, you could say, you know what? This week I commit to. This is my next step. Maybe it's memorizing Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. People in Jerusalem didn't like the Samaritans, did they? But God said, you're going to expand my kingdom there. And I'll tell you what, the Jews didn't like the ends of the earth. They didn't like the Gentiles, but God said, you're going to expand my kingdom even there. It's not going to be just like you, but it is his kingdom. Maybe we memorize this and find that the power to love one another too is not just in me how pious I am, but I received power when the Holy Spirit came upon me. And that's how I can be his witness. Not a witness of this church, not a witness of this denomination, but a witness of Jesus Christ as Savior and King. This is who we are. Maybe you memorize that. Think about it in your life.
How are you his witness? Or how about this? Maybe you read Galatians. You want to see what God's word has to say about factions, even important ones, and how to address them? Read this book. You'll know. Or how about this? Pray for three. When God says that we're going to be his witness, they're going to actually be human beings that we're going to be witnesses to. (gasps) And you know what? If you're going to be a witness to them, you probably know some of them. Which is why through this series, I've been challenging you. Pray for three people. I don't have my, my, my note card right now. It's in my Bible in my office, but it's got three names on it. And there's a yellow card and seat back pockets, a lot of these here. And if you want one, take that out. Write the names of three people. And this is what I ask you to do, the gospel. Pray for opportunity to share the gospel, right? Pray for courage and words when he gives it to you. Even today, I've heard two people come to me and say, Aaron, I've been praying for somebody for a few weeks now, and I have the opportunity this week. How awesome is that? God works through prayer. Or how about this? Maybe you want to attend our spiritual giftings class. If you are in body, but you're not serving as part of the body, there's work for you to do. You have a place here. You make us healthy. But if you don't know what that is, well, that's why you're not maybe everything either. We have somebody in our church who's gifted at helping you find that place. Her name is Kate McMillan. She teaches a membership, uh, that, that, that Bible, that the spiritual giftings class is going to be Wednesdays. There's the dates right here. If you want to sign up for it, let us know. We will make, we'll see, put a seat at the table for you. It's two weeks long, three hours each. Every person that's gone through it so far has said everybody should be taking this. It's, a, it's an awesome class. So I invite you to do that. Or maybe you're here today and you're not in Christ. Here's the invitation. There's a better partisanship. There's a better way to live. And if you want more information or you want to make that decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is what I want you to do. The first thing is on the back, it says, I want more information about following Jesus as Lord and Savior. That does not make you a Christian. That makes you curious. That's what it means. If you didn't check that, I want you to put your name and information on this card, right, so I can read it, and we'll get together. We'll talk about it. I'm sure you have questions. And if and when you are ready, I'll help you take those steps of faith so that you could be part of this great church family. You can live this new life with us. If you do that, I also invite you. I'm going to be standing in the back after the message. Just come say hi to me. Let me know that you're here so that way I know who I'm making an appointment with. That would be great. All right. If you have a prayer request, I invite you to write that down. In here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we do, uh, please take your, these connection cards, put them in the basket with your tithes and offerings and, uh, and your prayer requests. Let's pray for these, and then we'll also have the worship team come out and close us with some worship. Let's, let's pray now. Father God, I thank you for each one of these brothers and sisters that are here with us today. Lord, I thank you that you've called us to one great kingdom together. I thank you for their faithfulness even to bring them here. I pray, Father, that you would bless that, that you would expand the kingdom in their hearts and their lives, that you would protect them from the enemy, but also from the, from the lie of the enemy, that these temporary and these, uh, these divisions that we have created as humans and the enemy uses to divide us from one another, that causes us to hate one another, we declare them to be lied. And so, Father... Help us to embrace the truth that we are in Christ. May he be our one and only, the greatest definer of who we are. Help us to love one another beyond these other barriers, Father. Let us to care for one another in such a way that the world sees it through our demonstration that you are true. As Jesus said, that the world will know that you are, we are truly your followers by our love for one another. So may that be a blessed connection card that we have each written in our, and the, the commitments that we've made. Help us to keep them in a way that draws us closer to you and one another. Father, we also pray for our tithes and our offerings. As sign and a symbol that we are in this together and we are in it with you. May you grow your kingdom in us and through us for your glory. We pray all of this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.